So if you want to keep the 1.5 degrees alive, it requires bold leadership, it requires the political will, and it requires people to really do some uncomfortable things to get the world back in track for countries like us to actually survive. Welcome to In Our Hands, a podcast about the challenges and opportunities presented by the climate crisis. Each episode features a new thinker at the front lines of the battle to save our planet. Join us as we delve into the complexities of this global challenge and seek actionable ways to build a sustainable future. Welcome, everybody. We are very fortunate to have with us today Khadija Nassim, or Haja Nassim, as she prefers to be called, who is the State Minister of the Environment, Climate Change and Technology for the Maldives. She holds a Master of Environment from the University of Melbourne, Australia, and has over eight years of experience working in international organizations, NGOs, and various government agencies. Prior to her appointment to State Minister, she served as the Environment and Climate Specialist at the Ministry of Environment, Climate Change, and Technology. Haja, thank you very much for your time today. Could you talk us through your life and career? Uh, What made you decide to join politics? Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. First of all, I really appreciate it. My name is Haja Nassim. I am from the Maldives and I grew up in the Maldives, you know, with my family. And I've been living in Mali until I was 16. Then I moved to Norway to go to boarding school. So I won a scholarship to the, U- to to the UWC. Yeah, right. so I went to the UWC. Um, so I spent two years there, which I think was had a really, really big impact on me. And it opened me up to the world and, you know, so many things. So here I come from a very small island. I had not been outside of the Maldives much other than a trip to Singapore and to the neighboring India. But really, that's it. And then I come to Norway and I have so many international students on one campus we're in the middle of nowhere and you really it really opened my eyes to the world and to the different religions cultures and the global issues so that really had a very big impact on me and then i went on um, to do a gap year and i did work in the startup of the uwc in bosnia as well which was another eye-opening experience and yeah and then I moved to the States afterwards. Um, I lived in Bar Harbor, Maine. I know it's so random to say this, but I lived behind Acadia National Park, which is so beautiful. And I now regret taking it for granted and wish I went on more hikes and more nature trips. But but, but, but Maine, <laughs> Maine is much colder than the Maldives. It's much colder. It's much colder. But it's interesting. Like every time. So I live near the fjords in Norway. And I was in Mount Desert Island. So I still live next to the ocean. So it's an island still. uh, But very different and very cold. So... So, yeah, so this had, uh, again, it was another transformative experience for me. I studied human ecology. We had, you know, farm-to-table food. We had renewable energy on campus, composting toilets, very forward-looking. It's a very small school, but it really was, you know, actually taught us to live sustainably, in a sense. And so this really kind of shaped me in, in, in many ways. Did you yeah. did you always know you would return to the Maldives? Was that always sort of the plan? I mean, I sh- I wouldn't say for sure that it was always part of the plan, but I have to say that while 
with all my summer breaks so in all of my breaks always if i'm home i'm there and i'm not just there only for holiday i've always volunteered or done some work or, or traveled islands and i really care deeply about the Maldives. and i'm also a very family oriented person so because my my parents are at home and i was the first one to go to college in my family and everyone's home so I, I really always enjoyed going back home and, you know, the, the immediate reaction to people who get the chance to go abroad would be, well, now you have the whole world out there, you could just be out there. But I guess it wasn't that like that for me because I did contemplate a lot, but at the end of the day, I got drawn to going back home and I went home oh. and I have been there and just... Can you just give us a snippet of how you ended up in politics? So actually, it's it would be funny to say. So we have a so so we've had the Maldives had had a had a long struggle for democracy. So there was a thirty years of dictatorship, um, and and yeah. this was changed in two thousand and eight. And in two thousand and eight, I was still a student in college, and I remember coming home for six months uh, to do partly an internship, but really it was also because a very defining moment for the Maldives when we we're about to vote for the first time in a multi-party democratic elections. Uh, in all right. our lifetime and so this was really exciting and I actually was home and was a little bit part of the campaign of the then presidential candidate uh, Mohammed Nasheed um, and, and also my family has always been very politically active um, and okay. so I have that inbuilt in me that you know that to be part of such a change. So I never imagined myself to be in politics in that sense. But when I moved <laughs> home, so this this really this really uh, made me very excited, and it was an exciting time for the Maldives. And then I moved back home in 2011, and a year later we had a military coup, and the government fell. Right. And so it always. Um, it brings a lot of emotion in me because, you know, people have worked so hard to get the freedoms we had and we keep sliding back. And so I've all, always been very concerned, but I had not worked in government. I always worked with government in in transparency, in UNDP, um, in World Bank contracts and in the in the Maldivian Red Crescent. But but when the government changed again in 2018, I was given the opportunity to be part of the government and I got appointed to the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change and Technology. And and so that's this is how I got into the space. So my first in my first thing that I had to do in government was to accompany the president, uh, President Nasheed, who's the who at the time went to Poland as the president's special envoy for climate change. And so yeah. this was my entry into it. And I was given the climate change department to oversee. And this is how I got into the negotiation space and. It's just been a really, it's been a really interesting five years to say the least. Oh, I have learned a lot and grown a lot and I think we've done exciting things in government. Well, we're gonna now talk a little bit about that. To frame the discussion for our audience, which 
may vaguely know where the Maldives is, but doesn't know much more. Can we start with a couple of comments from you on how the climate crisis is impacting and could further impact the Maldives? Mm-hmm. So the Maldives is, of course, um, if you know about the Maldives, it's a uh, First of all, a very beautiful country. It's a, it's a, known as a high-end tourism destination. We have, a, a, we we are a large ocean state, a small island state. Um, right. We're 1,187 islands in the Indian Ocean, um, of which t- roughly 200 uh, resorts. We have one island, one hotel concepts, and we have equal yeah. amount of um, inhabited islands. And mm-hmm. um, we. You know, we are only uh, a meter above sea level, so this is very, very, it, it, it makes us very vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And especially in the context that we are currently living in the 1.1 or 1.2 world, 1.2 degrees Celsius world. And the 1.5 is when you, when, you know, when things are going to be really bad for small island states, because at 1.5, the coral reefs are expected to really take a hit. And, and and so the Maldives is entirely dependent on our ocean for our livelihoods. And we are people from the islands and, and, and everything is connected for us. So fisheries and tourism are our two main industries. And for us, it's just not only the livelihoods, but the islands, uh, like our way of life, everything is connected to the ocean. And so... Yeah. So we are very, very much, of course, the climate crisis is an existential crisis for us. Right. And so it's, it's, it's no joke. And the t- time is running out. And nowadays we're getting more and more storm surges, um, swells. When, when it rains, it rains harder. And it's, it's shorter periods of time, but it's more intense and there's more flooding. Yeah. And sometimes some islands are facing like similar crises like twice in the, in the space of a couple of months. And so the, hmm. so the government has, has to constantly address these issues. And, and also we have run out of fresh water on all of the islands in the Maldives. So oh, wow. we have um, we have desalination. The government has actually completed uh, completed the desalination systems on all of the islands, and and so we are doing the rainwater harvesting and the combination of desalination to address uh, this problem. So as you can see, like for for a country like the Maldives, it's it's very expensive to address these issues of um, critical infrastructure because most of our our powerhouses, our schools, our hospitals, they are only 100 meters from the shoreline. The islands are very small. So when something happens, all of these are in danger and basically all of them can get affected. So what happens right. to us is the, the the funds, the national budget that we would otherwise spend on education, we would otherwise spend on social welfare, we would otherwise yeah. do on, you know, all kinds of development activities have to be diverted to addressing the sudden disasters or the sudden issues that are caused by the increase of the climate impacts. And so this has a real implication on our 
fiscal space it has an implication of what how we're able to do development and it has a real um, it's a real challenge for the government in terms of balancing what we need to do for our sustainable development versus like how we are addressing the existing problems and in and, and this in the backdrop of the fact that we are also a country um, that also has to deal with debt and and right. and so it's a whole mixture of things and 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 on top of that you have to imagine like even in the covid crisis for instance it really highlighted our vulnerabilities because the Maldives imports maybe 90% of our food for instance right. we spend 10% right. of our gdp importing oil which is needed to run the whole country so this really highlighted our you know because the world is all interconnected and and you have and, and so basically it just one crisis on top of another crisis just exacerbates the situation and it really forced us to really think of um how to pivot our you know build back better mode into the greener and more sustainable ways in the backdrop of a whole lot of other complications like you know still we are a young democracy political yep. instability um all kinds of issues so it's it's a it's a hot mess if i would say it <laughs> in a simple way I, <laughs> yeah. I, I i have to, i have to say when you speak in this way and you're so eloquent god <laughs> I, you know it, 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 i can't imagine the stresses i truly cannot and that's actually an interesting transition, which is, you know, I'm living here in the developed West, and I, you know, obviously the government, under leadership of many people, including you, is doing a bunch of things to fight. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your biggest points of frustration in dealing with the developed nations when it comes to pushing for climate action and commitments? And you, I, I should tell our audience you're in the middle of this because you're in New York City for Climate Week. <laughs> of course. So, so I think I think it's really it's really important to highlight here that, you know, my my biggest frustration is the lack of political will from the developed mm -hmm. countries because it's not that you cannot not do it. Like you can, there are people who can take decisions that will have a really big impact on the lives of the most vulnerable population of the world. I know there are lots of think tanks, there are lots of universities, academics, NGOs, um, lots of concerned citizens, but the unfortunate truth here is, you know, you know, you can do a lot of advocacy and push for a lot of things, but there are some people with a lot of power who can take action that would really have a big impact. So I think this whole situation where we are in going forward to COP28 as well, because this is the year of the global stock take, we are going to be um, course correcting. But I mean, really, the, this there's no option of not course correcting here because of what's at stake here. It's the lives of a lot of people at stake here. So if you want to keep the 1.5 degrees alive, you need seriously to cut emissions. And because we, yeah. we aren't able to cut emissions, we've had to deal with adaptation but because there's no funds for adaptation and because we are like cascading into all of these things now we have moved into the space of loss and damage so it's actually getting more and more expensive and more 
and, and I would say messier to deal with. And I think this requires really good, um, it requires bold leadership, it requires a political will, and it requires people to really do some uncomfortable things to get the world back in track um, for, for countries like us to actually survive. So so I think my one of my biggest frustration would be the the reluctance or you know that that you know you need to see more leadership and political will than than rather than all the discussions we keep having in circles and going around and round we we totally agree with you and you know the recent news out of the UK and the UK government's actions over the last few days are not exactly inspirational We'll we'll stay away from that topic just for this discussion and move to move to maybe I don't want to say more positive things, but some of the more action oriented things that are going on. You are, as we mentioned, State Minister of the Environment, Climate Change, and Technology, and you know our audience is a tech oriented audience. Can you share a little more, if you can, about the role of technology and environmental data in addressing climate issues uh, in the Maldives? So. I think it's um it's a really interesting mix of having the portfolios of climate change, environment and technology under one ministry because of course the technology mandate pertains to a lot of the, the things that the government is doing in terms of moving to e-governance and 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 all of that but on the other hand we also focusing on using technology to improve our data collection and to enough uh, the understanding of the natural environment and on finding solutions to especially for our adaptation needs and also the use of technology to increase the participation of the of the citizens so like citizen science in, in how to use this in schools to enhance the role of participation and in, in make and make the the so finding the solutions uh, implementing our policies and giving more ownership to the local councils and the communities to take the actions required. So, so far we have some of, uh, I mean, we we have things in various um, stages of partnerships with the World Bank and some education institutions where we want to use the technology in terms of like using drones to to monitor uh, what's happening to our coastline, the satellite imagery um, as well to really understand what's happening to coastlines. Because one of the things that's re- that I, we have to face in as, as ministers and government is that islands would always come and request for, you know, because the number one thing that we have to deal with is erosion and the declining of the coastal, um, yeah, the coastal lines. And so what do we do? We put harbors there and we build infrastructure, but are we building the infrastructure in the right place? Are we really understanding what's happening to the whole island before we are doing the designs and are we incorporating the best technology or the materials that is actually making the island more resilient or are we actually contributing to maladaptation without knowing and the thing is a country like the Maldives we don't have the access to all of these things that is actually required to take the best um, the best uh, decisions in a sense or or we sometimes due to budgetary constraints we aren't able to incorporate all of this so I think technology has a role to play in making making the decisions better in making data 
uh, collection and the use of data more accessible and then for policymakers to be able to do things better, save more money for the future and strengthen the resilience for the for our uh, islands really. So that's 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 why it's I think technology can play a really big role in decentralizing and getting more people on board and 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 also foster more uh, curiosity and knowledge also among the students. So that is super helpful. I just have a couple more questions, mm-hmm. Haja, just just so we we are efficient with your time as you're fighting <laughs> the good fight. You know, one of the questions, this is one I actually have had for a long time before we were introduced for you. You know, tourism and fishing, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. are two of the Maldives' most important industries. Both of them also implicate climate and, and mm-hmm. the environment in different ways. And yet, you need to uplift the whole country to a state of economic well-being. How do you even think about balancing those things? <laughs> well, so this is this is the thing. I mean, we are from the ocean everything we do is from the ocean and so this is why we have to really respect it for what it is and and try to and try to keep it in the best health possible um but of course uh, of course it's transboundary the Maldives cannot by itself do um, <laughs> tackle tackle this issue. Uh, so this is why we need the co- the cooperation and collaboration of the entire uh, entire globe in a sense to keep the oceans healthy and 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 to tackle climate because it has very serious implications. So in terms of fisheries, the Maldives is of course a fishing nation, and we are the most sustainably fishing nation in the world. I can say very proudly because we fish one one by one and so in our easy it's not possible to do mass fishing and 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 all of those harmful forms of fisheries and and so and it's in and so we have uh, traditionally and and this is how we've we've caught fish it's one by one and i feel that it is one thing that the Maldives like really needs is to get the right pricing for our sustainability efforts and for the fishermen to be rewarded for for these efforts because we need to actually for for a country that's doing the the right thing we should not be getting any kinds of penalties or taxes or whatever abroad and 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 so these are the kinds of things that matter to us so fishing is of course going to be really affected and and i'm I'm going to tell you something about how there's also a correlation of fishing and tourism industry as well so the tourism of course um of course the tourists come for the pristine waters and um and 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 the natural beauty that the maldives is and of course with the increasing climate impacts of course the tourism industry would also have to be rethinking of how they do business and and also we get more and more conscious um travelers to the maldives so there is a demand for more how do i say a more environmentally friendly product 100 100%. Um, yeah so there's there's so that's that's something that's um, actually a positive sign, and we want people to come to the Maldives. But of course, with this, uh, with the, I mean, this year has been the hottest uh, hottest year ever yep. recorded, and and these things are going to have an impact on our coral reefs. And so once once we get a bleaching event, it's very devastating to even the tourism industry because the people come to the Maldives to see the beautiful 
uh, bright coral reefs and now if, if it's going to be all white and bleached, like that's a problem for us. And that's going to have an impact on, on the bait fishery, that's going to have an impact in, in relation to the fisheries. Um, and so so it's quite, um, it's all very connected. And so for us moving forward, we have to, of course, think of how to strengthen these sectors and to ensure that in uh, ensure that in the face of the 1.1 world and the 1.2 and 1.5 to come, how are we going to? What are we going to do about the livelihoods of all of these people? And how are we going to? How are we going to do these industries in ways that's more climate friendly and climate smart? So, so there is going to be like we have to be thinking of insurance products for fishermen and for for the tourism industry as well. And so, this is going to be an interesting thing because there's going to be the involvement of the private sector on the one hand, more more on the tourism sector, and and for the fisheries, there's going to be uh, more for public, but also the, there's going to be some amount of um, of private sector involvement. So this really makes people think in terms of investments as well, in terms of like how you're going to be building the results and in, in, in ensuring energy efficiency, in using more renewables, in ensuring that your structures are more stable and then you use, you use um, building methods that are less, uh, less harmful to the environment. All of those things, and also for the fishermen, we have to like um, really, really make the awareness a big thing on you know the in the endangered species or what's what's right. what's what you can do and what you cannot do. So there is lots to do on the educational aspects and awareness aspects, and lots of things on the policy side in terms of ensuring that you make these industries you have to kind of climate proof it but you also right. have to like have products for when things go really bad like what are you know what are the financing mechanisms available and what are the relief that's going to be available in the end of it realize that there are people in who are the center of these you know it's about the people's well-being and life and so think of that and 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 create the policies that will have the most benefit on them Haja, I'm, I'm going to wrap us up here with a very open-ended final question, which is, look, mm-hmm. you've been so eloquent. And I mean, you've said a lot of things here that I did not know, and I'm somewhat engaged and knowledgeable about climate. And so I think our audience will file it, find it revelational. For the average person who is climate aware in the developed West, mm-hmm. and that's a chunk of our audience, what message would you give them about how they should think about this issue? I mean, I think I I think first of all, in terms of a climate justice angle, it's important to it's I think it, I think it's so important to be aware of the of the climate of climate change and what it means to you know a person in in a small island state or someone in Libya versus someone in the United States, 100%. and and I think I think I think it's important to use your agency in wherever it is that you are, to really push for changes or to foster more environmentally friendly ways of life. And, you know, like people are always so overwhelmed either. I mean, I understand the the whole mental health crisis uh, behind, you know, this very catastrophic 
doomsday kind of scenarios of climate and it's true it it exists but we have to think from the lens of hope and and you know like every small things add up so it, you know that that you have the power to do some lifestyle changes or to choose the choose the better way i guess and 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 uh, really really have an impact on on how we how we all live in a sense but also if you're someone with the agency to to push for reforms in your community on changing from fossil fuels to green energy to go from the normal um, existing way of transport to the e-transport to really uh, push for recycling to um, participate in the move to the net zeros of the cities and you know you right. can take you can take action in so many levels at schools and businesses in city levels in the regional level so it's not just all of these countries up here in the UNFCCC with the with their country name tags like talking at each other but it's at so many levels so i think i would say that you know like you're all empowered use your agency and and push for change and and we need more people who care right because when people care and then things come from the heart i always feel that there's more you see more changes happening and so that's what i would say that was very eloquent and that's a great way to finish uh i want to thank you so much for making time in this window where you are super busy and i fully don't expect that this is not going to be the last time we talk <laughs> um and i want to wish you the very best of luck obviously for the elections cuz your role thank here you is thank so you so much and i really appreciate having this opportunity thank you for listening Please email us at climate at amasia.vc with any suggestions or ideas and visit inourhands.earth for the full transcript of this podcast and other information.